0: Hello, and welcome to 37th in the World, the official podcast of the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. GJIA is the student-run flagship publication of Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. On 37th in the World, we dive into key global trends and speak directly with the experts working on issues in areas ranging from conflict and security, human rights and development, science and technology, society and culture, business and economics, and global governance. In recent months, Iran has captured the international spotlight, as Iranian citizens are undertaking mass demonstrations following the detainment and killing of 22-year-old Massa Amini by Iran's morality police for wearing an inappropriate head cover. As the Iranian people's popular unrest mounts, so too does the regime's repression, with Iranian police killing hundreds of protesters since the uprisings outset. Amidst an already tenuous Middle Eastern landscape, the former Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs David Schenker joins Gajia to discuss how the United States should navigate these protests and the regime's brutal crackdown.
1: Thank you so much for sitting down with Gajia, Mr. Schenker. As you know, protests have swept Iran following the death of Masa Amini in Tehran on September 13th. Ms. Amini was a 22-year-old Kurdish woman who was killed in the custody of Iran's so-called morality po- police after having been arrested for wearing an inappropriate head covering. President Biden has stated his support for the protesters' cause, though as far as policy goes, the Biden administration has not taken substantial action beyond limited sanctions which could realistically threaten the regime. Indeed, just this week, former President Obama admitted he made it a mistake by not supporting Iranian protesters more forcefully during the so-called Green Revolution of 2009. With this in mind, should the Biden administration be doing more to support the protesters and as the senior official overseeing this region under the last administration what would your policy be
2: uh well listen i think um i think obama's um, uh, statement and his expression of contrition, uh, um i think is important um although regrettably very late not only for, of course, the Iranians, but uh, but also the same could be said for the Syrians, uh, some half a million of whom perished. Um, I think that, uh, that uh, the Iranian people uh, are clearly uh, fed up with their tyrannical uh, regime uh, and the protests go beyond the hijab, and this is about uh, this authoritarian theocracy. Um, the regime, though, has any number of tools at its disposal to quell these protests, um, and has shown a will to, uh, to like Assad, to kill its way out of problem um, but I don't think these are these protests uh, and these sentiments are going away. Um, this is a huge proportion of the population. And so I think it's incumbent on the, the US government to get behind these people. Um, I think that uh, the groups who were advising Obama when he made this mistake back in 2009 were groups like NIAC, that advised against a so-called kiss of death of US uh, provision of, of support or even rhetorical backing um, for uh, for uh, these protesters. I, I think that's exactly wrong. Um, I think it's really discredited. Um, these people want our support, but it goes beyond rhetorical support. Uh, it should go beyond rhetorical support. Um, it should be some sort of uh, material support. And whether that is material support in terms of helping these people to maintain um, internet connections, right? Uh, uh, Whether this is through Starlink or other technologies, um, this is something we should be doing. Um, We should be um, designating not only uh, these morality police who murder um, Iranian women um, but we should also be taking I think um, really strong measures to ensure that not only uh, the regimes but the son the regime but the son and daughters of the regime aren't coming to the United States aren't going to. US universities um, aren't going to Europe. Um, you know let them live in this country with so much uh, suppression. Um, they shouldn't be coming here. But most importantly, um, we should not be freeing up and liberating billions of dollars of cash for the Iranian regime that will enable them to buy more bullets to kill the protesters. Um, this is not the time to be alleviating sanctions. This is not the time uh, to be talking about a nuclear deal with this country. In fact, we should be talking about snapback.
1: Thank you, sir. So you did just mention it, but that kind of leads us into the next question, which is, of course, as you know, the United States has so many other ongoing strategic entanglements with the Islamic Republic of Iran. One of them being uh, renegotiations for for reentering the JCPOA, as you mentioned, which are stalled, but still part of the Biden administration's hopes. Also, uh, Iran's adversarial presence in Syria and its proxy presence in Yemen and throughout the Middle East is continuing to stymie American interests. And in Iraq, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard has bombarded Kurdish opposition groups and successfully undermined the recent Iraqi election, preventing the formation of a sovereign government in Baghdad. Um, so, with all these issues at play, which affect America's strategic interest, where should addressing Iran's internal human rights violations rank within the U.S.'s foreign policy priorities? And can we press the regime forcefully in favor of the protests without sacrificing strategic goals on other issues with Iran?
2: Well, aside from listen, I did, the administration, whatever administration is in power, um, has to has to deal with with all of these issues simultaneously. And they have to deal with Ukraine, and they have to deal with the the growing challenges based by China, posed by China. Um, every administration comes in and says that they can walk and chew gum at the same time, and invariably they face um, uh, bandwidth issues. And so, you know, I, it was my view that I think the, the administration really dropped the ball on Iraq, but, you know, not paying attention to government formation ten months after the Iraqi elections, and um, ending up with um, you know basically uh, the Iranians in a much strengthened position in Baghdad. Um, now maybe that is part of an overall policy shift that the administration wants to downgrade its uh, involvement uh, in the in the region in the Middle East. Um, but uh, these are still critical. Um, Issues for us and our partners, um, and so um, you know we have to uh, be engaged one way or the other on the ground. We have to push back um, on Iranian proxies. We have to help our allies, our partners in the region, to better, more effectively push back on these proxies. And if you're not doing that in Iraq, I don't see where you're doing it in the region at all. Um, and that involves, you know, not only sanctions but um, putting pressure on our our our, our friends um, to take steps themselves where possible on the ground. But I know it's a very difficult thing for the Iraqi government to do to try and, um, so the last Iraqi government to try and do to try and limit, um, you know, these Iranian-backed uh, proxy militias on the ground who basically operate outside the control of, um. Of the government, but um, were possible to try and take steps to root out corruption, to um, to uh, develop um, energy independence, not to not be so dependent on Iran, for example. All these things um, would help mitigate towards sovereignty, which is in our interest. and um, also pushes back on you know on Iran and we um, we can do it all. Um, it's a question of uh, you know how committed we are and how how much of a policy priority it is. Um, whether this is you know um, in Lebanon with, with Hezbollah providing um, Israel with the material it needs to better contend with these issues kinetically, if we're not willing to do so, um, uh, and our and our partners um, who with whom, uh, with which we, some of whom uh, we have strained relations right now in like Saudi Arabia, um, that we have to enable them to uh, be able to defend themselves, notwithstanding um, our differences over OPEC+. Uh, wow. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the it's more than one dimension, right? Human rights is an important part of policy. It can't be um, that, you know, as we are a... Uh, a great country, right? Uh, a great power, um, and as uh, I think it was Bernard Lewis who once said, you know, um, a great, great, uh, what uh, great powers? Uh, something along the lines of, um, well, you know, we don't, you know, we don't just have double standards; we have multiple standards, right? Um, uh, you know, we have to weigh where human rights fits in. Um, in terms of priorities, and in terms of our bilateral relationship with any particular country, right? Um, should we be harder on our, our our partners than on our enemies in terms of human rights, or or our adversaries? Um, these are all questions that you know policymakers have to have to deal with. But it certainly is a priority. It should be a priority with Iran, uh, um, as. Uh, as is uh, the pushing back on on these regional proxies who have destabilized not only Yemen, uh, but Iraq, Syria, and of course Lebanon.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. And you did kind of again allude to it. So I wanted to turn now uh, to some broader Middle East trends at play and specifically Saudi Arabia, our main ally in the region. As you know, this week, President Biden announced a reassessment of U.S. ties with Saudi Arabia in light of its uh, decision to cut oil production through OPEC+. Do you think this complicates the U.S.'s ability to consolidate an anti-Iranian coalition in the Middle East?
2: Well, let's say, first of all, um, I don't believe that this administration is consolidating or working to consolidate an anti-Iranian Coalition in the region, um, I it is doing some work in facilitating that, but um, I think and then SentCom helps, but uh, that's not um, a priority. Um, you know, I think that's um, something they're doing, uh, but let me scratch this. I'll start. I'll scratch that answer. I'll start. I'll start again. Um, United States is doing some work um, on uh, with SenCom via SenCom to try and um, facilitate cooperation between our allies in terms of uh, intelligence sharing, common air picture, maybe a regional air defense system. Um, we have uh, a very important, long-lasting relationship with Saudi Arabia. Uh, there is ongoing communication. There had been ongoing communication between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Saudi decision to cut um, uh, mil- the OPEC plus decision to cut um, oil production was not a surprise for the administration. They had been informed beforehand. Um, and in fact, according to reports, the administration tried to delay the announcement of the cut until after elections. Right. Um, uh Saudi Arabia says that these uh these decisions um are based on the data, on markets, on economics. Um and in fact, there are times that the United States wants increased production and times where the United States wants decreased production. During the Trump administration, uh the administration, Congress very much wanted uh Uh, uh, production cuts by Saudi Arabia because there was too much oil on the market and was putting uh, 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 fracking, US fracking um, industry out of business, right? Um, So um, I think this is a difference, uh, a disagreement, um, but one that is not insurmountable. Um, For the past two years, the president of the United States, the administration, had as a central tenet of his policy was to um to make uh the future king of Saudi Arabia into a regional prior an international prior right um the president said there was no socially redeeming value in uh, uh the government of Saudi Arabia and any government so in the government of, of Saudi Arabia um it takes more than one visit to repair some of the damage that has been done. But in any event, um, the crowning achievement, diplomatic achievement for Mohammed bin Salman over the past few years has been uh, OPIC+. And so it's, I think, unrealistic for uh, the United States to expect that he would break that agreement. Um, And let's see what happens going forward in terms of uh, the winter, if uh, the energy supplies go very short in uh, in in Europe, uh, what the Saudis you know do or can do. Um, likewise, they played other types of productive roles in Ukraine, um, but I think it's incumbent on this administration um, not to cut its nose despite its face. Right, um, I know they're disappointed in uh, in Riyadh, uh, but to uh, but to, uh, to cancel regional meetings uh, regard, uh, regarding the building of a common air defense picture and, and missile uh, defense, sh- you know, shared regional missile defense system, um, is counterproductive. It's counter to our interests. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia is going to be an important partner going forward. Um, we cannot take them for, uh, for granted. They have, there are many choices out there, but they would certainly prefer to be the partner of the United States. And I think we, uh, that they are an increasingly confident, um, foreign policy actor. Um, and, um, and,
1: uh, yeah, I think we, we need to, uh, to mature our relationship. Thank you, sir. Um, so, as you may know, a few Congress people on the the Democratic side just this week proposed legislation to end us. arms sales entirely to Saudi Arabia, arguing that these OPEC plus oil cuts are aiding Russia in its invasion of Ukraine., uh, do you agree with this assessment that Saudi has basically turned in favor of Russia? And if so, do you think there's any options that the Biden administration should be taking policy wise to try to hold Saudi Arabia accountable and, uh, you know, reorient them more towards our alliances? Well, the, it's, it's election season here in the
2: United States. There's a lot of grandstanding going on. Um, I don't think this would be a productive approach um, to um, to what was a decision that we that the, the administration disagrees with. Um, and so I, I think uh, I think it would benefit us to um, wait a bit and put this in perspective and, um, yeah, and consider our next steps. So the administration says it's undergoing a policy review. Um, I don't think there's going to be much coming out of that right um we have a, a very difficult relationship um that uh in part is because of you know how uh the United States and how Saudi have you know interacted over the past two years and I think it it's in both of our interests to get the relationship back on on firm footing mm-hmm.
0: but yeah, I don't sure. I don't think they're
2: mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that they are supporting Russia in the war in Ukraine.
1: Okay, all right. And with that, I would wanna ask you one maybe more theoretical question, just tying in these protests with uh, the discussion on Saudi Arabia. So of course the Iranian regime's brutal crackdown on its own people uh, protesting these past few weeks represents a systemic violation of human and women's rights embedded deeply within the Islamic Republic. Uh, However, some would argue the same could be said of the Saudi regime, which has imprisoned female activists. It murdered Jamal Khashoggi, an American journalist, and it has uh, surveilled. He wasn't an American. He wasn't an American. An American uh, resident, non-American citizen. uh, And uh, the Saudi regime has uh, also surveilled and targeted its own citizens while abroad. You talked about how the United States... uh, Foreign policy, of course, will always have some double standards or even multiple standards. Uh, but does this hinder the U.S.'s ability to legitimately claim to stand up for human rights in the Middle East uh, when it ignores arguably one of the region's biggest violators of human rights?
2: So I think uh, once again, uh, I don't agree with the sort of the nature of the, the question. Um I think human rights in Iran are, uh, are some of the uh, well, human rights in Iran are, are, are atrocious. Um, and the trajectory, however, in Saudi Arabia is very different. Right, um, there's no more mutaween. There's no more morality police in Saudi Arabia. Right, um, men and women can walk together without being beaten in Saudi Arabia. Men and women can go to a coffee shop that. That aren't brother and sister or husband and wife. They can go together uh, in Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, women can drive. Uh, women, uh, you know, and these are innovations, changes that have been implemented by MBS, right? Um, they have um, uh, they have a, a chief cleric appointed by MBS, who when he comes to Washington, goes to the Holocaust Museum and then he writes an op-ed in the Washington Post about how arabs have to recognize that the holocaust happened. Right? Saudi Arabia reportedly has um has uh, uh, um uh contacts with uh with Israel. Right? Um Saudi Arabia was uh the leading driver for a ceasefire in Yemen, right? Unlike the Iranian-backed Houthis, right? Um who actually recently broke the ceasefire right ended the ceasefire um, uh, uh, there are all kinds of positive developments in the kingdom now whether um, whether there this is uh, still a problem I think the answer is yes there are there is certainly um, uh, women that are under house arrest uh, there are uh, dissidents who are um, are pursued but uh, I don't believe that human rights in Saudi Arabia are demonstrably worse than those in Egypt We give Egypt you know one point one one point three billion a year right they're a major non-nato ally um you know I, I think we have to we have to put this in context you have um uh, one of the most uh, autocratic governments in the region um in Iran that is, uh, that hangs gay people from cranes, right? Uh, that uh, that kills its dissidents abroad. That funds mo- proxy militias that kill Americans and their other dissidents abroad. Um, we've seen some problematic stuff from Saudi Saudi Arabia that I don't believe that it rises to that level.
1: Thank you, sir. Um, And I will just ask you one last question about um, U.S. Middle East policy in general. So in the Biden administration's recently outlined national security strategy, it signaled that it is focused squarely on China and Russia going forwards and beginning to disengage militarily with the Middle East, as we've seen in Afghanistan and Iraq. Do you think this is the right move for American strategic interests, or does it risk seeing the U.S. lose crucial influence in the Middle East?
2: Clearly, China is a major strategic challenge facing the United States going forward. Uh, so, I think that this administration, like the last administration, that really started to implement the pivot to Asia, um, you know, to really focus on uh, the challenge posed by China and the PRC. Um, I think that this is going to be, you know. Um, this the fundamental US policy going forward for all administrations. Um, whether that means that we're leaving the Middle East, um, you know, I don't think that's wise. I think we will and should leave some residual forces, um, some equipment. Um, we should be working with our allies and helping to pr- you know improve their capabilities so they can do more by themselves. With with uh, less U.S. support, um, but we have to be present, um, and we've seen that we're not present. Um, not only can bad things happen, but that our allies and our partners start to hedge, which yeah. is that uh, they, you know, um, that um, UAE, for example, um, has China build a, a military port in their country, um, that. Uh, uh, that Saudi Arabia has China build a ballistic missile factory in their country. Um, uh, that some of these countries um, you know, look for uh, different types of, of options or relations with China. I think it's important that we're there. We, I think we still are the partner of choice, um, and we have to show that, um, that we're committed. Uh, And what the right number is for that um, is for, you know, an administration, CENTCOM, to ascertain. Um, But I think our partners, our allies, um, they know it when they see it.
0: This was 37th in the World. Thank you to David Schenker. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a comment and rating on whatever streaming platform you use. To read this interview and other insightful interviews and articles, please check out gujia.georgetown.edu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.